0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. People who are out to commit scams really have no ethics whatsoever, and they're going to do whatever they can do to make a buck.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, we've got my interview with Chris Parker. He runs whatismyipaddress.com and has got a lot of uh, interesting stories about people coming to him with scams.
2: And we are back. Joe, you want to kick things off for us this week? Yes, I have a very interesting article that doesn't necessarily have to do with a scam, but it does have to do with how we perceive things. Okay. It is from Gustav Kuhn, who is a psychologist and a magician, and he's written this article over at Nautilus. We'll put a link in the show notes. Okay. The article talks a lot about perception, goes into driving later on, but I'm going to focus on the first half because the first half is what I think is fascinating. There was a man named Norman Triplett who studied the psychology of magic. And in 1900, he published a scientific paper on magic that discusses an experiment on a group of school children.
1: Okay, over 100 years ago.
2: Over 100 years ago, right? Right, okay. A magician sat at a table with children around him and threw a ball in the air a few times. Before the final throw, he secretly put his hand below the table and dropped the ball into his lap and then threw the ball up in the air again. So he went through the motions. Correct. Okay. It's not a real clever trick, right? Yeah. But more than half the children claim to have seen an illusionary ball leave the magician's hands and disappear somewhere midway between the magician and the ceiling. Really? Really? Huh. No ball had left his hand. The ball was in his lap. The children had perceived an event that did not happen, which is interesting. Yeah. So, what's going on here? Are we well, just playing on expectations or? Triplet, when he wrote the paper, said it was retinal afterimages. Okay. He thought there was a physiological reason for this, hmm. right? We all get retinal sure. afterimage, particularly if you're driving into the sun. You have one, the sun burned into your retina, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but Kuhn was skeptical about Triplet's explanation. Okay. So the illusion relies on misdirecting the audience's expectations. So they anticipate you throwing the ball for real. Right. Where you look provides the most powerful tools of misdirection. Hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So Kuhn recorded two different versions of the vanishing ball illusion. One where he threw the ball in the air twice before secretly palming the ball and then pretending to throw the ball, but following where the ball would go with his gaze. Right. Uh, And a second where when he palmed the ball, he stared at his hand that held the ball. Okay. He showed each video to a group of test subjects, different subjects. Because it's a modern time, Kuhn had the ability to measure the participants eye movement and that comes into play later. Okay. When they're watching the video, it's it's pretty impressive. Nearly two thirds of the participants, these are adult participants, who watched the first video, claimed they saw him throw a ball the third time or the final time. The illusion was far less effective when he looked at his hand. But when he didn't look at his hand, Two-thirds of the participants fell for the trick, and they're adult participants, not children. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. When he asked them how they thought the trick had been done, people went on to say, somebody caught the ball out of frame or it stuck to the ceiling. This was so compelling that when people watched the video again and had been told that the ball was never thrown the third time, people who believed the ball was thrown and believed they saw a ball were absolutely astonished that the ball had not been thrown.
1: I thought you were going to say they thought that the video had been altered or something. They
2: may have suspected that. Yeah. There's another video that this reminds me of where there's people passing a basketball and you're supposed to count how many times the ball is changing hands. Yep. And then they said, did you notice the guy in the bear suit dancing through the scene? Yeah, I've seen one with a gorilla. A gorilla suit. Maybe it's a gorilla suit. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Uh uh-huh. Amazing. Yeah. It's the same kind of thing. Basically, what Kuhn found is that Triplett's idea of of this being a physiological thing is wrong because if it was a physiological event then both groups of participants should have seen the ball. But it has to do with where you're looking and how we work as humans Mm -hmm. and how our expectations are leading us in a way that might not be correct. That's fascinating. Here's the interesting part. Okay. Once people knew how the trick worked, they didn't fall for it anymore. Oh, they were inoculated. They were inoculated. Okay. Go on. Another fascinating part was when he asked where people were looking, they thought they were looking at the ball. But when he looked at the eye data that he was tracking, the eye movement data, they were actually watching his face more often than the ball, huh? which is where they were getting their clues from. That is interesting.
1: You know, one thing it reminds me of is that when someone's learning to juggle, uh-huh. you know, juggle three ball, can you juggle three balls? I cannot. I can. I can. I can learn to juggle, or I have learned to juggle three balls. I think I learned it back in elementary school. But one of the tricks to learning how to juggle is when you toss the ball is to only look at the apex of the arc of the ball. Right. So don't follow the balls with your eyes. just look at where the ball reaches its apex point and when it starts to fall because when you watch the apex you know where that ball is going to land. You don't need to fo- track right. that ball. Right. That's
2: enough, that's enough information for your brain to interpret the parabola that the ball is exactly, following.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And and so I wonder, I mean, that's, this reminds me kind of of that. You think you may have to look somewhere, but you don't. I saw an interview with a pickpocket magician mm-hmm. that his thing was getting your watch off of you or getting your wallet off of you without right. you knowing it. Yeah. And he made the point that he learned that his movements – were very important as to whether he could get away with something. In other words, if he moved his hand in a straight line, someone was much more likely to notice what he was up to than if he moved his hand... In an arc, there's something different in the way we track movements and what gets our guard up.
2: I would imagine that a straight line looks more offensive. I don't know. Like a punch coming in.
1: Yeah, I don't know.
2: I don't know. I I would like to see some study on that. That's my speculation. Yeah. I have a great story about things like this. My dad and my uncle Tom used to do this great trick with a paper bag. Okay. And they do it with kids where you have a paper bag and you're holding it in your, in your, between your thumb and your first two fingers. Okay, And you reach into the bag and you act like you grab something and you throw it up in the air and then you move the bag like you're going to catch it and then you snap. But because you snap with the bag in your hand, it sounds like something has hit the bottom of the bag. Okay. So they used to do this all the time when we were kids. My Uncle Tom tells a story when he was in the Air Force. He was in a hangar, which is a big open building. Right. With some supply sergeant sitting at his desk. And the supply sergeant was eating his lunch and had finished emptying his brown paper bag. And my uncle grabs the paper bag... Says, oh, there's still something in here, reaches into the bag, pulls out the imaginary object, hurls it all the way up, you know, so like there's nothing. He's not hurling anything, but throws <laughs> it up in the hangar right. and then like runs over to another side of the hangar and snaps his finger and puts the bag back on the sergeant's desk and starts walking out. And he hears the guy behind him look in the bag. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so she was in
2: there.
1: Oh, my. <laughs> and that's why he got a dishonorable discharge. Uh, he was on. The- <laughs> <discharged. laughs> yeah. Well, and I think uh, you know we talk
2: about all these stories week after week where people are playing on your expectations. Exactly, and that's what this is. But my my favorite part about this is two things. One, people didn't know where they were looking. They Mm -hmm. thought they were looking at the ball, but they were looking at his face. And Mm. two, and this is why we do this show, once people knew the trick, they couldn't be tricked by it anymore. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. I remember the same thing. We were talking about that thing with passing the basketball and the gorilla. Right. Once you see the gorilla— you always like, see the gorilla. How, how could I not have seen there's a gorilla there? how right? How did I miss the gorilla? but you missed the gorilla. I'll try to find a, a version of that uh video and we'll stick it in the show notes as well it's a it's a well known one well now and, everybody uh, knows now that everybody the, the there. gorilla yeah, right mm, but well
2: you, you know
1: what you do is you ask <laughs> ask someone who hasn't
2: heard the podcast, watch their reaction right get a friend, yeah, yeah. a friend to
1: do it. yep <laughs> all right. well, that's a good story, Joe. My story this week is about a woman who's using her technical skills and some social engineering. For good. Awesome. Now, you and I, uh, I'm certainly, we've been to our share of social events, to parties, and things like that. And yes. probably when we were younger men, we would go to some of these parties, perhaps hoping to meet someone. Maybe ask them out on a date or get to know someone, maybe find a new girlfriend, something like that. Something like that. Yes. Yeah. And the problem is for a lot of uh, women who go to social events, there are guys who just don't know how to take no for an answer. Right. They don't get the message and they're just too aggressive and they won't go away. And this, of course, this is a problem for women. I imagine for some men too, but mostly I think we can agree this is a problem. That Yeah. Uh,
2: generally, men won't regard this as a problem. <laughs> in my experience. Yeah, well,
1: that's true. That, right. That's a good point. But women,
2: I absolutely understand. I've seen it. I used to hold hold a lot of parties in college. And yeah, it was, it was very common. And I even had to ask people to leave at times.
1: Yeah. A lot of times women will say, whether or not it's true, they'll say, hey, I have a boyfriend. Bug off. Right. Right. So there's a woman named Chloe Condon, and she works for Microsoft. She's a cloud developer advocate there. She has developed an app that is a, Fake boyfriend app. hmm And what this app does is she uses it. She has a little Bluetooth device that she can keep in her pocket. And basically, she presses the button on this Bluetooth device. It's a Bluetooth device called a flick, which is a little Bluetooth trigger. Okay. And when she presses the button on the flick, her phone rings- and guess who the call's from? It's from her boyfriend. From her boyfriend. That's awesome. <laughs> yes. <laughs> who is a handsome, strapping man, right? And... That nobody can compete with, right? <laughs> that's right. Absolutely.
2: <laughs> oh, my boyfriend! I can even show you a picture of him. Yeah, that's David
1: Beckham. <laughs> yeah, that is it my is. boyfriend. So I'm going to play this message. This is the message that it plays. All right.
2: Colonel, call me. It is I, your boyfriend. Please call me as soon as you can. It is very urgent. <laughs> Getting
1: Rick <laughs> it gets, well, yeah, she put the Rick roll in there just, uh, you know, for fun. Uh, and hopefully whoever she's fooling with
2: this boyfriend thing uh, doesn't hear it. Can you record a different sound?
1: Uh, no, no, no. This is her own thing, mostly for her own amusement. And right. uh, if you want to use it, she has a series of steps that you can put this together for yourself. But I love this. I think this is a great use of uh, social engineering where she's uh, this, this is tricking people for good to yeah. someone who won't take no for an answer to bug off. No, actually, I do have a boyfriend, and oh, look, he's calling me. Right. Yeah. Now, I actually went and looked uh, on the App Store, and uh, boy, there are a remarkable number of fake boyfriend apps. Are there really? Well, not so much this sort of thing, but boyfriend simulators.
2: Boyfriend simulators.
1: Yeah. Use your imagination what that means. I don't know. There's a big variety of what the possibilities are for that, but – You know, there's an app for everything, Joe. Yes, there's an app (laughs) for that. At any rate, congratulations to Chloe Condon for uh, coming up with this idea. I think it's a good one. Uh, And that is my story this week. I like it. All right, Joe, it's time to move on to our catch of the day. Our catch of the day this week comes from a listener named Mike. He wrote in and he said, Saw this in my spam filter before hitting delete and had a chuckle while I read through. Thanks for the great work you guys are doing. It's made me much more aware of what's going on and even allowed me to poke fun at coworkers when they got caught clicking on links sent by our own company to test our gullibility. I did not click, and I think a good part of the reason why was as a result of listening to your show. Man, Thank you, Mike. All right. Well thank you Mike for uh, for that kind note and yeah. um here is how the email reads My name is William Allen I am the manager of Moneygram department in Bank of African I am here to inform you that a man came to our office this morning. His name is James Mike. He told us that he is your brother living in London. He said that you are dead accident about two months ago on your way going to work and before your death you told him that you have fund worth of $3.5 million cost of $75 to receive the fund worth of $3.5 million and he came here with the $150 for the activation this your reference number to pick up your first payment of $5,000 today. If real you are dead. May your soul rest in perfect peace. Amen. But if you are alive, please do get back to us with $75 activation fee of reference number today and pick up your
2: first payment of $5,000 today. Okay. Pause. Dave. Yeah. I have no idea how you read these like this. This is such (laughs) terrible English. I I could not get through this. It has to flow well for me to be able to read it. Yeah. And you're sitting there reading this perfectly.
1: Thank you. I just disconnect my brain and just let the words... (laughs) Just come out, yeah.
2: You don't think about what you're saying. No, I
1: can't. No, you can't. You You can't can't, because it would
2: drive you crazy if you were doing this.
1: Yes, uh, crazier than I already am. It, It goes on. Let's continue. If I did not hear from you today with the activation fee, then I will collect the $75 activation fee from Mr. James Mike and give him this information to start pick your daily $5,000 from our MoneyGram office around. But if you still alive, use this information to pick up your first payment of $5,000 next two hours after you send $75 right now. Track it with our website. Below is the information to send the $150 activation fee via MoneyGram Transfer or Western Union Money Transfer and receive your first payment, U.S. $5,000, next two hours today. Have a wonderful day if you are alive, but if you are dead, may your soul rest in peace. Amen. Because if you're dead, (laughs) you're not going to be able to read this message. Well, at least they're polite.
2: Yes. And, and you're, <laughs> you're, the man claiming to be your brother is going to get all the money. That's right.
1: That's right. Absolutely. So you've got to beat your brother to get this money, the, the whatever, it right. is millions of dollars.
2: That's amazing. I mean, <sighs> I,
1: I guess somebody ran something through some sort of translation filter or something. Bank of
2: African. <laughs> That's what I'm yeah, like. Bank
1: of African. Is there a Bank of Africa? What gets me is that it's not that hard anywhere in the world to find someone. Who speaks English? Right. Was there no one around who they could run this
2: by to just give it a little polish? You know, it, <laughs> this this doesn't surprise me, Dave. I get a lot of uh, sometimes I get products that have been assembled elsewhere. I think. I remember buying it may have been a lawnmower that I had to assemble, yeah, and the assembly instructions for my lawnmower, which is a legitimate product that I paid real money for, mm-hmm. were like this. <laughs> they were they were translated from some other language, uh, yeah. probably Chinese because I think that's where it came from., yeah. and they didn't even spend you know a thousand dollars to have an American proofread and edit it. Mm. because they're selling it in America. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that should be, there's a business model for you. Here's my free million dollar <laughs> idea, idea to our listeners. Yeah. Start marketing a service to, you know, that you already can provide to foreign companies to proofread their instruction manuals.
1: Yeah, I'm sure that's out there. There's got, it's got to be there. out yeah. there. It's got to be out there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember when back in the 80s, Sony got in trouble because they had a series of VCRs that they were selling here. Right. And uh, the example in the manual for how to set the date, they used Pearl Harbor Day. <laughs> yeah. Was that the Japanese? Yeah, it was the Japanese. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not uh, bad form, bad right. form. All right, well that is our catch of the day. Thanks to Mike for sending that in. Coming up next, we've got my interview with Chris Parker. He runs what is my com. And we are back. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Chris Parker. He runs whatismyipaddress.com.
0: I use that site frequently. Yeah, it's a handy service. It is. And he's got some stories to share. So
1: here's my conversation with Chris Parker.
0: I uh, started whatismyipaddress.com back in early 2000. I think it was actually January. So we're just a little bit over 19 years now. Hmm. And it was uh, originally designed to solve a technical issue I was having at a company I was working for. We were having problems with our internet connection. This is, you know, 90s. Can't imagine ever that happening. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, you know, we didn't know what our IP address was. And, you know, you get online, check AltaVista because there was no Google then, Lycos, whatever. And there really wasn't an easy way to find out what our uh, office public IP address was. And so I thought, mm. you know, I, I can be clever. I'm, I have a little bit of programming experience. I've got an internet connection at home and I've got an old Windows NT box. Let me put together a website that just answers that question. And that's how it started. Well, it's hard to think back to a time when just that was difficult information to find. And so a utility like that would have been extraordinarily useful. It was. And uh, unfortunately, at the time, I didn't realize it until many, many years later that it actually was uh, profoundly useful for a tremendous number of people. And I found out by the hard drive getting full of the logs from the website. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: great. So, wow. Your popularity uh, exceeded what you were expecting there.
0: Yeah. I think part of it was because it was never planned to be a business. It was never planned to be much of anything, except this was a solution to a problem that I was having. And I thought oh, other people are probably having the same problem. So let me just make a website that solves just that.
1: So let's fast forward.
0: Uh, we're almost 20 years past that. What's going on over there these days? So I've uh, built a tremendous amount of content around educating people about privacy, security, online safety. Um, it, it really alarmed me after a number of years, the contacts that I was getting from people, people wanting support saying, hey, uh, I've, I've lost my life savings to this person I met online. I've never met them in person, but all I have is their IP address. Can you help me find them? And it was really kind of a devastating thing to hear people losing life savings cashing in their retirement to help this poor person that they met online because they were having medical conditions or their kid was in an accident you know when you look back at it as a, a third party you go oh my gosh i can just see red flags all over the place but once you get emotionally connected uh, people were just giving up everything and at the end of it they had nothing except for well i got an ip address from a email that we sent back and forth can we find the person from that how do you respond to someone like that the answer is generally, unfortunately, you're probably not going to get any of your money back and you're probably never going to see it because usually these people, at least more recently, they're using VPNs, they're using internet cafes, they're in third world countries where you know, the laws are going to make it a lot more difficult to find the person. Even if you could find out who the internet connection belonged to, you know, are you going to be able to find that person? Was it a burner cell phone that they were using? It's just really difficult these days. You've got to watch it on the front end. What are some of the scams that you've seen over the years? Probably one of the more recent ones I believe you guys have talked about is the sextortion scams where you're getting an Mm -hmm. email that says, hey, I've compromised your computer. And the way I've proven that I've compromised your computer is here is your password, which they've gotten from one of those uh, data dumps. And if you don't send me X amount of money via Bitcoin, I'm going to post all the... Uh, illicit videos that I've recorded from your computer of the sites that you've been visiting, and you don't want you and your whole family to be humiliated, so pay up. Now, you've had some personal experience. Some folks have come after you as well. Yeah, I definitely have had some personal experiences. Uh, One of the uh, first websites I built back in uh, the late 90s uh, was an online bookstore uh, competing against Amazon. Who'd have thought it? (laughs) How'd that work out for you, Chris? (laughs) Definitely not well. They won the battle. (laughs) I see. Yeah, okay. (laughs) But this was back when I was in in college and probably considerably more naive than now. The biggest order I got was uh, someone wanting to ship Bibles to a a church in Nigeria. Hmm. And I thought, wow, this is awesome. I'm helping people out. I'm helping out missionary work. This is really cool. Yeah, I'll I'll process that credit card. I'll go down to the FedEx Depot with the FedEx number that they provided. And let me FedEx this to them halfway around the world. Uh, About a week later, I get a call from my bank saying uh, this large charge has been uh, rejected, (laughs) refunded. Hmm. In fact, it's fraudulent. And I I was devastated. To me, it was, why would anyone want to steal Bibles? That's, That's just a horrible thing. Yeah, there's a little insult to injury there, isn't it? There? It was definitely insult to injury, but I, that really gave me the, the realization that people who are out to commit scams really have no ethics whatsoever, and they're going to do whatever they can do to make a buck. I mean, I, heck, I wish they would employ all this intelligence that they've got into constructive things. But they've applied it to destructive things. They're out to get whatever money they can from people and they'll take advantage of emotions. They'll take advantage of you being a nice person. You know, often they take advantage of greed and fear, but they'll often go after people that are just trying to be good people.
1: Back then, this was far enough back that uh, I guess it wasn't widely known that any communication from someone from Nigeria
0: could be a red flag. Yeah. Even if those scams were going around of, hey, I've got $50 million for you. Well, that's an obvious scam. The person who wants to place an order, hey, that doesn't seem like an obvious scam. And so even if there were, I mean, looking back at it now, I you know I see red flags all over the place about it. But right. at, the t- at the time it was, I was excited. My business was growing. This is a good thing. This never even crossed my mind that it was a scam.
1: Now, you also had a run in with some folks who were uh, hitting you on the advertising side of things.
0: Yep. And this is one that, uh, in some sense, surprised me that I got taken for. Uh, This was back in uh, late 2012. I got approached by someone claiming to represent a reasonably well-known and reputable ad network platform. And, hey, we want to uh, run ads on your site. And here's the amount that we're going to pay. And it wasn't so much that it was suspicious. It was all that. Hey, that's a pretty good value. That's a little bit more than I'm making from other people, a little bit less than others. It wasn't this gigantic, oh my gosh, they're going to pay me triple or quadruple what other people were paying for ad space. It was right in the mix with what other reputable companies were doing. Looked at the website. Yep, this is who these guys are. Email back and forth, had a contract, had an insertion order. Did all the the regular back and forth that you would do on making a business arrangement, and he gave me a login to reporting statistics. And after about a week, it just started seeming like the stats just seem a little wonky. This the reporting feels a little weird, but not alarmingly so. This is kind of earlier days in ad tech, so a lot of people didn't have great platforms, but it wasn't so much alarming that it was a huge red flag. And then uh, the platform got started getting. Unstable in terms of I'd try to log into it, can't connect, it's down. I'd email the guy, oh, we're, we're having technical problems on the front end. Don't worry, the back end's still tracking. And then he went dark. The website went down, the domain name wasn't resolving anymore. And I'm like, oh, no. And I uh, immediately shut them down on my side and started doing digging on my end and found out that this guy had got the .NET version of the company name instead of the .com. Uh oh. And so he had you know, set up using a stolen credit card, had set up email, web hosting, all with stolen credit cards. And he totally copied their site page for page exactly, but just on the dot .NET instead of the dot .com.
1: And in this case, what was he stealing? Was he stealing the space on your site that you would have otherwise sold to someone else?
0: Yeah, he was basically taking the ad space on my site and he was getting the ad revenue for it. So, he was brokering it. He was brokering it, but wasn't paying me. I see. So, he disappeared well before invoicing would ever even get close. And kind of the thing that, that upset me about it was when I called the real company, I finally figured out, hey, there's someone impersonating you guys. You guys need to do something about it. They're like, well, we're fairly aware of who this person is. Uh, he's in a different country, and we just don't have the resources to go after him. Hmm. <laughs> So it was like, oh, yeah, we, we know this is happening, but uh, oh, well. Right. I mean, totally at the time, I was like, you need to get your lawyers on this. You need to, you know, do everything that you can to shut this down. He's hurting your reputation. But the reality was they were being pragmatic about it. It was very unlikely that they would ever find this guy, very likely that he would ever be convicted, and very hard to justify it when they haven't necessarily seen a financial loss. Right. And on my side, I was initially like, well, fine, I'm going to go to war. I'm going to hire a lawyer. Luckily, I thought best of it. I said, well, you know, I'm out a couple thousand dollars, maybe $10,000 of ad revenue. But gosh, a lawyer is going to cost me a lot more than that. And if I never find it that I'm out, I've already been out the ad revenue. Now I'm going to be out legal fees. Right. And I'm just going to be throwing, you know, good money after bad. I just need to chalk this up as a, a massive business lesson of you've got to have processes in place to make sure that... You've dotted the I's, crossed the T's, confirmed that people are who they say they are before you ever do business with them.
2: All right, Joe. What do you think? Well, first off, I think that a hard drive full of web logs of people using your service is a good problem to have. <laughs>
1: That's right. True. True. Yeah.
2: True. True. Yeah. One of the first things he says is a key point. When you look at this as a third party, when people contact him, he sees all kinds of red flags. Mm-hmm. But when people are emotionally invested, they don't really see them. And Chris talks about this in his own experience, and he's very open and honest. That he says this is how I got taken. Mm-hmm. Right. That's fantastic. Not a lot of people are willing to talk about this, and if we're if we're not willing to talk about this, then we're never going to be able to inoculate other people about
1: yeah, it. Yeah, the bad guys rely on that that feeling of shame, don't right. they? Embarrassment, and yeah.
2: I'm sure that Chris is, is not proud of these things that have happened to him, but I'm very happy that he is talking about how he got scammed openly. Mm-hmm. So, thank you, Chris. Yeah. I love the, the discussion about the Bibles. I'm wondering how you monetize stolen Bibles, but it's...
1: He <laughs> I was guess very, anything with value, right? Yeah. yeah.
2: He's very focused on the on the sale, and that's what kind of blinded him. He was caught off guard by the sale. And with the actual Service when he contacted the company this fraudster was impersonating, they said, we know this is happening, but you know, there's not, not much we can do about this. Mm-hmm. This is the world we live in. We're pretty much on our own in this kind of a situation. And that's what the scammers rely on. It's very important to be eternally vigilant. As we say, everybody's going to fall for something. It's very difficult to get your money back.
1: Yeah, especially as these things have become international. Right, It's hard to cross those borders to track people down.
2: It may not even be possible to track them down. Like Chris was talking here, they may be in an internet cafe or using a burner phone, yep. in which case you're never going to find them. Right. All right. Well,
1: again, thanks to Chris Parker for joining us. His uh, website is whatismyipaddress.com. Uh, if you have that question, he has the answer. Thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Editor is John Petrick. Technical editor is Chris Russell. Staff writer is Tim Nodar. Executive editor is Peter Kilby. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening.